Hi everyone, welcome to the B2B Game Changers podcast. I am your host, Lee Hackett. B2B Game Changers is the result of my hunger to help companies of all shapes and sizes unlock the value in their business. This podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I have learned in the process of working with some of the most successful companies and individuals in the world. We'll be featuring leaders from across the world to discuss the forces, opportunities, and challenges that are shaping the future of sales and marketing. Welcome everyone to the B2B Game Changers podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about um, B2B storytelling and, and why that's important and why that's kind of changing. And this week's guest is uh, Graham Brown. Graham is um, sort of I've known for a little bit now. I've been on his podcast, uh, I think twice, once in Singapore and once recently, a few months ago. And uh, I'm, Graham's CEO, Pickle and Co., and uh, chief storyteller, podcast host, and you know, just general chief cook and bottle washer, I think, Graham, isn't it? You know, it's a good old English term there. Um, so, look, Graham, look, thanks for coming on. It's great to be here, Leah. It's my turn to interrogate you it now. Is, yeah. So that, be gentle. Well, yeah, you're the, um, you know, you're definitely the, uh, the expert on interrogating, uh, <laughs> your guests. Right. So, but, and I think we met what, two years ago now yeah. in Singapore. Yeah. In the studio. In the studio where I come on your your podcast and um that was it was definitely one of the ones that i've done in regards to punk podcast that the one i enjoyed the most mm. it was a good conversation wasn't it it was, all, it was over an, an hour yeah absolutely and um i think that's when i was just getting kind of my the bug for podcasts and i've been a listener of them for years before that then wanted to do my own and kind of then go on podcast and I kind of went on yours and seen how it should be really done. And, um, and I think we should also say right from the beginning, I am also, you know, we are also kind of interrelated in a business way because I am also uh, a, an investor in your business, right, as well. And, uh, you know, for full disclosure, right? So I'm not, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, promoting things that I also believe in, right? And, um, but I think that in itself is obviously a, a kind of testament, I think, to the topic today of B2B storytelling and podcasts and how that's important. So let, before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you and your background and, you know, kind of, because I know you've got a really interesting background, lived in different parts of the world, different projects. So let's go back to kind of early days first kind of business roles and how you got into business. Hmm. Where do you want to start? I mean, I don't have the professional footballer background, so I don't go far as back as you do, Lee. So I kind of come onto the scene probably post-graduation where I, was, I went to Japan, where it was back. I mean, if you're sort of of an age and you grew up, Japan was always it. Japan was always the place to go if you were young and ambitious it was always the, you know go east where opportunity was it was always like sony tdk you know tdk tapes that was a thing right 
and all those sort of consumer electronics like your VCR and all that, they're all Japanese and the TV. So it was always sort of, you know, a, a, an exciting frontier to explore. So I guess that's where I got my start. I mean, I went to Japan just because it was a ticket. It was a passport to, you know, a new world to see something else outside of the confines of where I grew up. Wow. That's it. That's not a small step. And um, how old was how old were you then when you went to Japan? Uh, let me see. So I was, I was just graduated. So I was about 20, 20 something, early 20s. Oh. Yeah. Wow. That's a major step. It was as well. I mean, as well, you know, that was 94, 95. So, um, you know, back in those days, you didn't really know what you were getting into. I mean, today you can look at Instagram or Google it, right? But back then you were kind of relying on traveler's tales, you know, like people would come back and say, yeah, I was out in Japan for a year. And that became your, that, be, that was the social media back then. So you, you didn't, you know, it was much more of a risk. You talk about stepping up, but back then it was, it was a big risk because, you know, you couldn't check it online. You couldn't read the reviews. So you were going, I mean, it wasn't as bad as it was probably like in the generation before where you got on a boat and you went and you never came back. I mean, at least you could come back, but you really didn't know what you were getting into. Yeah. And that is, you know, Japan as a place I absolutely love. And, you know, I've kind of been trying to get my kids there on holiday and for the, I think the last three years, because I wanted to take them somewhere which was very different. Right, not you know, kind of Europe or America, or but like really, really different in terms of culture. So, at that time, you know, going into business then, in and or you know, going to Japan and you know your first job or or you know what what did you do? Teach English. Yeah, that's. I mean, if you were young, out of the gates, that's what you would do: teach English. So, you know, there was a demand. I mean, you could earn good money as a young 20-something teaching English because, you know, Japan was a hot economy. It was still, I mean, it had slowed down. It wasn't like the 80s. So if you went and taught English, you could earn more teaching English than you could, you know, working in a bank. So that was a natural opportunity for everybody that was, you know, so inclined. You could just go out there, you could learn, you could experience the culture. And yeah, it was different. Absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of, I got there, and you'd like this actually. One of my first students teaching English, I remember he came to class. He came on his own, and if you could afford private lessons, you obviously had a bit of money. So this guy, he's quite a big guy, tall for Japanese. He comes in and quite sort of like you know imposing figure, like as tall as me, sort of one eight five, six foot something. And he comes in and he walks into the this the language school, and the, all the students. I didn't know who this guy was. All the students kind of looked up and went, oh like as if somebody important had walked in. And I, and I had no clue. I just knew his name was Kato. That was it. It was a very Japanese name. So he sort of comes in and he sat down and, you know, we started talking about him and like why he was here and why he was learning English. And it turns out that he was a Japanese football player. And he was like one of the first J-League players and he played for Yokohama Marinos when you know sort of the whole J league kicked off so he was like well known he was also a commentator so he would have been wow. in english terms a bit like a gary lineker <laughs> yeah so you know when he walked in everybody's like oh he's him 
And I, I didn't know who he was, but it was quite cool because all he wanted to do in the lesson was talk about football. So I thought, great, <laughs> I'm getting paid for this. Brilliant. That's that's um, that's it. That's the. Um, I think the, when you were talking there, I was thinking, right, it's Gary, Gary Lineker right? or <laughs> Alan Hansen um, uh, or something like that, right? It, it's that kind of um, that kind of stardom. And yeah. um, how long were you doing that for then in teaching there? Two years. So I did two years, which was sort of about the maximum i think if you kind of wanted to get exposure like teaching english it doesn't go anywhere after two years you know you're doing the same thing so at that point it was like the mid to late 90s and japan had just launched imode which was like one of the first mobile internet services in the world and it you know it had like an app store years before apple launched their store, right? So, you know, you had NTT Docomo, the Japanese mobile company just launched, you know, we're now in a world of like these small dainty phones, right? These pocket phones. And I saw young people using these pocket phones and communicating. And then I, you know, I came back to England, to London, and I remember walking in Tottenham Court Road, walking into one of the mobile phone stores in the days when, you know, mobile phones were the size of bricks. And I looked around and I thought, wow, I feel like I've gone back, you know, into a different era here. Because like in Japan, they had all these kind of tiny, cool, like pink and blue and, you know, designed phones. And everybody in, in UK was walking around with these big bricks. And, you know, I thought, wow, there's something here. And I, I wanted to start a business, but I didn't know what to do. And um, I, we talked about this, I think, on your when you were on my podcast, it, you know, I thought, well, well, how do you get to start sales, right? So literally, I remember buying a newspaper and, it, you know, you go through all like, okay, estate agent and then, you know, like door-to-door sales. And then there was just this tiny little box in the corner saying, um, be your own boss, phone this number. I'm like, yeah, that's it. And I phoned it and... Uh, they pulled me in for this presentation and you know those people that may know there was a company operating out of Tottenham Court Road at the time it was quite infamous a bit of a boiler room um, selling life assurance and pensions over the phone in those days when you could actually do that right you know you could phone up and hello Mr Hackett have you got a pension (laughs) in those days people actually came and met you as a result of a phone call a cold call right so I did that. I mean, so I did two years and came back and got a start in sales, you know, to really kind of learn my craft and, you know, start the whole journey. Yeah, I love that. We did talk about it. And it's funny, isn't it? Because that's, and we talked about this on your, on your podcast, but it, it's worth kind of reiterating is that's how it happens, right? That you, you kind of, you know, you, you took a leap, you got, you went out to Japan, you kind of did something and and then you find out, you know, opportunities arise because you're putting yourself in that position where, you know, you went to Japan, you've seen something different, you come back, you know, you build up a picture, all of a sudden that pathway, that that kind of road forward starts to come clearer. And um, I'm talking about that with my, my kind of daughter at the moment because she's leaving university and I just said, look, you know, just do something. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter what it is. Just get into something and, and figure it out. So, you know, that, 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 that's just testament to that. But just back to the, the English teacher 
Because I, I, I think I knew that, but um, is that where the storytelling come from? You know, in you, because, you know, you, I, I, you wrote a book recently, an ebook, which I actually sent out. I haven't told you this, but I sent out to some people in my network, a couple of customers, and also well, I sent the link. I actually sent it to a guy called Franz Cohen, who's head of data science. Uh, I think that's, maybe I've got that wrong, but I'll make sure it's correct job titles in the show notes. Um, and at Liverpool University. And, um, you know, probably one of the the best guys I know interpreting data into a story or, you know, into something which is usable. And 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 he said this, he said to me, this is fantastic. And, you know, it, it, the, the whole book itself, the human communication playbook that people should download, you know, that's a story in its own right. And, you know, that, that must have been a big level of effort to write it. But is that where that comes from, that storyteller in you? Does it go back to that kind of, you know, English teacher type mm. of you know, approach? I don't know. I mean, it's a good question, Lee. I, I really don't know the answer. And I guess, you know, like yourself, these things are kind of revealed to you. There's, there may not be specific pivotal moments. You know, in the sense that, okay, that's when it happened. It's like this epiphany and I was a storyteller. You know, th there is a sort of a combination of events. Of course, teaching is obviously a, a form of storytelling. And, you know, you sales teaching go very much hand in yes. hand. You know, Definitely. especially in the B2B space, they always talk about teaching sales, right? Yeah. And storytelling in sales. Absolutely. Right? I mean, massive, the, massive. The, those three together, teaching, storytelling, and sales, are really one of the same in a way. Because mm. it's, it, you, what you're doing is you're trying to, I guess what you're trying to do is you're trying to take somebody from where they are over effectively a river in their minds, you know, to the world of the unknown. Like, and, and in sales, it's like, okay, look, I'm, I'm trying to get you to part with some money to go here because it's better for you. And there are many reasons why you should do that. But we are, by default, very afraid of change. So, you know, your role as a salesman or salesperson or as a teacher is really to, to show people why they need to cross that river. And in many ways, storytelling is a big part of that because what storytelling does is it connects the unknown to an experienced known, right? I mean, that's why, you know, analogies and stories Yes. Use very familiar frameworks, right? I mean, as you know, when Steve Jobs stands up and says the iPod's a tool for the heart, it's very conscious use of words, isn't it? Because what he's doing, he's, he's not saying this is an MP3 player, which is, you know, what a very inexperienced salesperson would do. He's saying that this item connects to what you already know, the heart, you know, all, so all your understanding about emotion and feeling and music go hand in hand with that, right? So I think that the fantastic storytelling is not always, you know, these sort of heroic myths, but sometimes the use of analogy or frames, you know, we've, we've had conversations about strategic narratives, right? You know, and how important that is for increasing value in sales and so on. So I don't know, I guess like what's happened at a later point in life is I've managed to join the dots, you know, Steve Jobs style and, and work it out that that is actually a meta skill and it comes from all these experiences and even going way back to, you know, as a kid being that kid that kept saying, 
why why mm. and getting into trouble for doing that and you know that's i think the 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 seed that flourishes into becoming a storyteller right because you're always interested in communicating something different to people yeah completely and i think in the b2b you know now we're talking about it if i go back to my career in when i was purely in sales actually quite a, a number of individuals one i am actually still friends with come from a teaching background and um, uh-huh. i never kind of connected the dots on that but they come from a teaching background or certainly you know had that kind of uh, in their cv but in, in the b2b world if i think about all the best salespeople that i work with they were able to paint a canvas mm. for the customer now you know at that point, the, the kind of assets and opportunities to do that wasn't there because the comms that were coming out from B2B businesses was, you know, very product focused. It was, you know, there was no context, you know, to use, you know, a, 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 something I like from the book that you've kind of laid out as, you know, the, the content and context piece. It was, and the salesman was able to enrich the experience for the customer to convince them to buy that product or to buy into them. So they were always painting a canvas of, to the customer of, you know, why you should deal with me, you know, if it's a kind of, you know, relationship type sell or why you should buy my product. And they were able to kind of do that on a one-on-one basis. And that you know, there was no surprise those individuals always had the highest conversion rates, always had that the the highest average order values, always, you know, hit the targets. Where a, another kind of type of salesperson might struggle because they're just thinking about the product and the kind of functionality rather than what you get from the product in, in a B2B sense. Does that make sense? You know, from Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you're talking about why people buy effectively. And there's that different, I mean, you talked about content and context. You can look at it as emotion and logic as well. And if you, if you consider, if you think about the decision-making pyramid or like an iceberg and that the bit that pokes above the water is logic, you know, and you know, if you ask somebody, why did you buy that? You say, well, you know, I bought it because it was on sale or I like the design or, you know, it, it's easy to use. These are logical reasons, but below the water is this sort of 90% what we don't see. And that, that's really where stories speak to. So you can imagine if you were selling to somebody that really the reason why they're buying is that emotional level. And often that emotional level is driven by things you can't see. So it's, you know, their vision, their, their self-image, um, fear, all, all these kind of aspects, which they don't talk about openly. I mean, you know, how many, a good salesperson knows how good fear is as a motivator. As an example, how do you sell life assurance, right? You know, the, the pitch for life assurance is you give me money whilst you're alive and I give it back to you when you're dead. I mean, how do you sell that? And as a product, it's pretty lousy on, on the logical level, because what you're doing is you're just asking for money with no real benefit. And yet the reason why people buy life assurance isn't because actually they want a payout when they die, because they're not going to be able to enjoy it. They're not there around to, to 
you know, benefit from it. However, it, it's what they call in advertising the benefit of the benefit, which is, you know, that they're not buying the fact that they've got cover. They're buying the fact that what kind of a man, for example, would leave his family without any kind of cover and, you know, destitute on the street. You can paint all those kind of pictures about what would happen and do you want your wife to remarry another man and your son to be brought up by this stranger? That works. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big stream, but you, you get the idea that buying life assurance isn't about buying cover or the product. They're buying whatever it is inside them, the fear or their self-image or, yeah, I've got a million dollars life assurance. And, you know, that kind of like, okay, I feel like I'm good. I'm a, I'm a responsible man now. That's real. And that is where we've got to kind of get to, even in B2B sales, and probably more importantly so, I feel, because you're dealing with bigger sales. You're dealing with people who are, you know, are probably in complex sales as well. So there's many more chances for it to drop out. So I feel that that storytelling in the B2B space is exceptionally important. And like you say, people sort of gravitate to product, but that in a way is probably a lack of understanding of what people really are buying into. I'm, you know, on the insurance bit, that, that completely resonates with me. I'm, I'm that guy, right? You know, uh, I want to make sure that, you know, I've kind of, uh, I've ticked that box, right? So I'm, I'm probably at easy sell, but, but you're completely right. And, and in terms of the, the B2B buyer journey now, you know, how buyers buy kind of thing, you know, the big shift there and is which why storytelling is so important. And, you know, as you said before, you and I have had quite long conversations about strategic narrative and kind of the, uh, I like the kind of, you know, to try and paint a picture of a, an arc and, you know, the story and, and, uh, and a good movie has, you know, a, an arc to it in terms of, you know, uh, how it's written. I think when I talk to a lot of businesses about this and, and kind of, uh, the importance of it, where the kind of penny drops is the buyer journey now is made up of multiple personas, right? So it's like your audience is much bigger and broader than what it was before. And also the audience is now armed with a lot of information. So they, you know, they kind of don't rely on you for that, for truth. They, they've already done a bit of research um, they already kind of know what they want. So what the what the what they're looking for is is actually you know um, a big shift in in terms of uh, you know rather than just you know give me information about the product. I you know what should I do with it? How is it going to affect me? What's the value of it? How quick am I going to get that value? What are the things I should be thinking about and not know? Uh, what don't I know that I should know? All of these kind of things are the expectation is much much bigger. And, and one last thing, which is I, I've kind of noticed in particular over the last, I would say, two years, is skepticism. You know, there is a, a and maybe I, I don't know if it's, you know, the fake news and media and all of those kind of things. And you kind of see a real skepticism. And then sometimes it's healthy. But in, in other cases, it, you know, it's a real challenge for B2B businesses where once, you know, you could kind of walk in and go, you know, here's the features and functionality and this is the benefits that you're getting. 
and technology has been sold like that for years. And where now it's, well, what am I going to get from it? You know, how's it going to make me feel? How's it going to get me promoted? How am I going to, how's it going to help me hit my targets? All of those kind of things. And I think that's the, where storytelling and a strategic narrative of a business is, that's why it's so, so important. Hmm. I, I, I heard the other day, Lee, that I think it's Cisco now has a chief storytelling officer. Mm, yeah. So I, I, there's a recognition, isn't there, inside these corporates, yes. whether, whether Cisco is a, a, a vendor or a buyer, that somewhere now, I mean, like you're saying the penny drops, I think now there's a realization, there's a shift, isn't there, that they're realizing that actually we need these skills now and it's not just a fluffy add-on for all the reasons you said. Because it's now becoming critical. I think it's also, it's more complex and complexity and the uh, differentiation and the, the journey is becoming more, uh, the, the audience is bigger. And to do that, I, I don't believe there's a way to do it without having a story, without having a strategic narrative. And I think the other thing you get with those tech companies, and I know Adobe have gone in this direction as well, Salesforce, is that the, the product is also becoming bigger. So they've got more and more products. So, you know, it becomes more and more complex for the, for the customer um, to understand the value. And they're increasingly looking towards storytelling uh, as a way to do that. And I can understand why, because I think for me, as I said, from a, but that's, it's still very early days though, right? It's, as you said, it's like what individual in the business. I don't think, certainly haven't seen that, uh, you know, uh, across the board or at a much lower level. That kind of links us into, into podcast as a medium to, to tell stories and, and, and talk about these issues. And, you know, so what, what, in terms of the, the business that, you know, the business that you now run, and, you know, you're hosting and helping businesses such as McKinsey tell stories, right? And how, what, what made you get into that? How did you, why did you feel podcast was the, was the way to do it? Yeah, I mean, maybe it was one of those things that I just fell into. I mean, there was a history there, many years of being connected with radio and really enjoying, even as a kid, having my own recording tape recorder with a microphone stuck to it and going around the houses and asking neighbors like about their lives you know this would be like i'd be five or six and that that worked out i think i told you this story before it worked out until the kids from up the estate came and beat me up and took the tape recorder because it you know in those days those things were valuable so i mean i was always recording stuff and i think you know the, the there's something about conversation audio that is timeless and it isn't going away because of digital just in the same way music didn't go away when digital came everybody thought they were going to kill it but in if, if anything's happened did music's become bigger than ever and really you know music's been around for thousands of years and so has conversation and storytelling and podcasts are a great way of doing that as you know the the idea of starting a business around that was a little bit of a leap of faith i mean i was in japan at the time living a semi-retired life and then this opportunity came where i thought i could start a podcast business i had started a podcast in late 2017 called asia tech podcast 
and really just to kind of reach out to people across Asia and have conversations. And it started as a hobby to keep me busy. And then I realized actually it was more than a hobby because these people weren't seeing it as a hobby. They, they wanted to talk. They wanted to connect. I thought, this is a really good way of connecting to people all over the world, just like we're speaking now, regardless of any kind of COVID situation or travel or time zones or whatever. And then, you know, realizing actually other people have this problem as well. Businesses have this problem of how do we connect? How do we create engagement at scale? And then what started happening was people were asking me, can you do this for me? And I couldn't do it on my own. So I gathered a, a team that could help. And, you know, we, we set out to do this. And there really wasn't a playbook. There wasn't a playbook in the sense of this is how you build a podcast agency. There was nothing. So, and especially in the B2B space, there was no sort of established way of doing this. So we just had to go out and plow our own furrow and with all the kind of mistakes that were made with it. But, you know, we learned a lot. We tried different things. We tried different formats. We learned there's a big difference between B2B and B2C podcasting. I never knew that. That was huge, that realization. Wow, this is like completely different. You know, when we started working with McKinsey and AirAsia and Zero and these B2B brands particularly, we discovered that they had a very different need to a B2C podcast, which is more like, you know, Tim Ferriss or NPR. So we realized actually this, this is something new. Uh, it's a big risk doing it, but there really isn't anybody out there doing it right now. And, you know, that's, you know, it just became something, a mission we were on. We were propelled down that, that road because somebody had to do it. You know, these businesses needed authentic ways of communicating now. I mean, you look at McKinsey as an example, you know, one of the premium brands in the world. Why are they turning to podcasts? Because for them, it's a great way of humanizing that brand and connecting with, you know, people at scale. Yeah, completely, completely. I think that that the um, there is a there is a, a huge kind of perception because it's still really early days in podcast, and I think everyone, you know. I've been listening to podcasts maybe for, I can't remember, maybe six, seven years. I don't know, you know, Joe Rogan, all that, you know, kind of people that you like and I like, and we've talked about many times and I'm not a, a reader. I'll read things like eBooks or blogs, but then I'll, I'll never read a book. And so for me, it was kind of audio and then that step from audio in terms of audible into podcasts. And, and now it's kind of my main source of information if I really, in terms of these subject matter experts who I can now plug into, who never get access to, it would cost me literally hundreds of thousands of pounds, I can now kind of just get for free. And I don't think there's an awareness, well, I know for saying, there's just simply not an awareness of that around podcasts still. And I think that, that everyone in the B2B space, when I, when I talk to people in B2B space and say, look, you know, you know, I like your podcast and who's the audience and stuff like that. And, you know, there's not many businesses out there that have B2B businesses that have podcasts. And 
and they because they see it as a B two C communication tool, don't they? That's still media. Yeah, it's a, it's a, as you said, it's Tim Ferriss, or it's almost like a a certain community of individuals. You know, probably kind of it's different demographics in different countries, but will listen to podcasts. But then that translation over to the business world is still, well, in its infancy, right? And so for a business like McKinsey to do it and others that, that you do it for, is you can, I, for me, it can make complete sense because when I've, and I've listened to some of your, you know, produced McKinsey podcasts and I'm now getting kind of access to their analysts, Right now, I, I don't know how much that costs, right? But it's it's a few quid, and uh, or a few you know uh, dollars, wherever you want to put it, right? And but you know, from a B two B sense, I can now get access to some of the best analysts in the world who work for McKinsey or the CEO or other individuals within the business, and for free. And I, I just don't people individuals, businesses don't think that way about it. They see it as a beta, a B2C communication media. You're absolutely right. It's still seen as media and it's about eyeballs and content, which have its place. But I think there's a really untapped value in B2B podcasts. And I believe it is, you've mentioned one, for example, the access to information. And that ability to effectively put out the equivalent of a lead magnet to thousands of people and then drive people back and, you know, acquire and influence your leads. It's certainly a great way of influencing your B2B leads, right? And then I also think there's what people haven't really gotten hold of is the value of a podcast as a business development tool. Because you and I both know the value of getting a conversation with somebody, especially in the B2B place, space where you, you know, you're, you're talking deals thousands and up, right? You're not talking like a hundred bucks on a deal, but thousands, if not, you know, you're talking large deals. The ability to sit with that person and have a, a conversation that matters is priceless. So imagine if you had a tool where regardless, without travel, without any COVID restrictions and, you know, a completely time effective tool because you're not having to, you know, even have a coffee with somebody and, you know, you spend all the time getting there and back and so on. You could meet that person on a podcast and have a conversation about what you both care about. And that creates a connection that lasts forever. So if you think about what is the value of that in business development to a B2B company. Because, you know, if I can, for example, you know, I can sit with Tony Fernandez for an hour and have a podcast conversation with him and then go and do business with AirAsia, what is the value of that podcast to us as a company, right? So, you know, how do you put a value on it? Because even if nobody listens to it, you still got the meeting. And I think that's, you know, like with McKinsey, it's certainly one of their value, you know, from their perspective, not like you as the consumer of their content, but from them, the value of putting Oliver Tomby, the C, sorry, the chairman of McKinsey Asia in a meeting with, for example, somebody from the UN or a minister, 
podcast conversation or, or the CEO of SAP or whatever it may be, that kind of conversation, what is that worth to a company like McKinsey? Because as, as you say, they're not charging a few bucks for their time. And I think, Lee, I think this has not yet worked out the business case. Like somebody will get it and companies are slowly getting it. It's actually, wow, this is a great biz dev tool. You know, what if I could have a hundred meetings with people that could be clients, could be potential clients, partners, you know, thought leaders. What is that worth to a business? And all, all we need is more companies like yourself, for example, out there doing it. So people say, actually, this looks like quite a good biz dev tool for us. We need to be doing that. Yeah. Now, I, I, when you were talking about that, it was getting tingles on my spine because anytime you talk about business development, right, you, I'm all in, right? So, uh, you know, on anything, as you know. But that, 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 that's, that's the kind of heart of the matter. I think it kind of comes back to, and this is something that you and I are working on, is how can we kind of bring that into a language and a, almost a data visualization of how podcasts are just part of that wider mix, right? Because B2B businesses... You know, I remember the days when digital, right, companies were thinking about whether they should spend money on PPC or or kind of pay-per-click, right? I remember those days and uh, B2B businesses, and these are big B2B businesses, and they're kind of thinking about it, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, going to work for us and right. Now, that ship sailed, right? There's no, there's no B2B business out there who thinks that they should not be uh, on the web, Right, and they should not, you know, be potentially driving traffic to their content. You know, I think that's 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 done and dusted. Our business case is being signed off. For me, this is just like that, right? It's the kind of being able to present the business case to head of comms or head of sales or a CMO or even a CEO of a business, and think that this is probably right going to be your most effective channel for conversion? Probably, right? I, I would, you know, I, I, in my own anecdotal experience uh, within Blueprint and Blue, and and then Blueprint X and then going global, uh, you know, the, the, the return on investment in podcast, um, in, pod, in producing our own podcasts and, uh, and then driving that forward um, although the the level of effort is significant, but that's why your company exists to make that level of effort a lot easier. The return is much much higher. You know, for me to get in the room, I, I'll give you a, a, a you know I'll give you a great example. I I did a podcast with Andrew Campbell, right? Now he's an ex McKinsey's um, consultant, but he's an academic. He's the n- number one guy, right? in the world on operating models. Now, you know, I'm a bit of geek, a bit of a geek on this type of stuff, right? But all of a sudden, now he's not going to turn out to be a client, right? But all of a sudden, I am now in the room with the number one guy in the world on something that I'm super interested in. And it was almost like a free seminar. Um, He's also checking out our operating model to give me some feedback, right? which is amazing. And then I told two individuals, clients, that look, um, I did a podcast with Andrew Campbell. It's coming out soon. Wow, right? You need to take a look at our operating model, right? We're reviewing it. 
And could you take a look at that for us? Because didn't know you did operating models, <laughs> right? Now that's going it, to, it's, it's unbelievably powerful. And that podcast hasn't even come out yet. We haven't even published it. We'll be doing it in the next, in the, in the next few weeks. And that's how powerful this stuff is. But it's just unknown. It's just seen as a gimmick, flash in the pan kind of approach to the B2B space. Oh, no, that's for the consumer world. Um, but it's, you know, uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, you're changing that. And, and I think together, hopefully, which, you know, we're working on it together, is in the coming months, we'll be able to kind of prove, because that's, you know, evidence-based, how effective this channel could be for B2B businesses. Yeah, it's an exciting time. You're rightly in the sense that it's a little bit less mainstream, but the patterns of change are there, right? You look at history. You look at the first websites, and everybody saw websites. The first one, I mean, if you go back to 96, 97, you know, when you would know, you would remember those AOL CDs that used to stuff through your door, right? You know, get online, and they used to give you the CD, and you join up with AOL and you get this really horrible user experience of the internet. But that, that's kind of how it was. And, and then there were people amongst those sort of early pioneers who started talking about a business case for websites. And in them, obviously, you had people like Jeff Bezos who were saying, look, this isn't about what everybody's talking about. This is about doing business because it's far more effective as an interface, as an interface for a store to be online. And you think back to the days when it's like, I think there was some stat and I have to dig this out and leave. Maybe I don't know if you know it, but it's like there was some stat like the most commonly um, Googled search term in the early days for e-commerce was store opening hours. Because what people would do is like type in, you know, like a supermarket, like Asda or whatever, store opening hours. And the reason was is because it was easier for them to go online and get that information from the website than phone up the switchboard, right? And if you think about what, what was the problem that the internet was solving back then, it was solving this issue of access to the, the company is an interface, right? That was a communications interface. It was more efficient for that company to communicate with their customers through this new interface than it was to go through a switchboard or to, you know, to turn up at the store and say, have you got this in stock? It's not in stock. It was far more efficient to go online. And so if you look at that change, that a lot of people didn't get it. They didn't see this as a new communications interface. They saw this as new media, but business as usual, right? It was brochureware. It was like, take your company brochure, scan it, and put it, you know, the first websites were actually just scans of, you probably remember them, right? Those were, they were actually called brochureware. And that's where we were. And it's kind of like, you know, you talk about this being seen as a gimmick and media. That's where we are now with podcasts. They're seeing it through the old paradigm of what it was before, which is, okay, this is media, but it's in audio. And yet you've got this group of people who are saying, no, 
it's more than that. You've got to understand that this is a new communications interface for business. And importantly, not business, but people inside the business. And this is where I think like in B2B, the real realization will happen is that, you know, podcasts are to business leaders what websites are to businesses in the sense that they are more effective communications interfaces. You know, why does Lee Hackett have a podcast? Because it's how we find out about Blueprint and Blueprint X and the man behind it, right? And we want that. And why does Oliver Tomby from McKinsey Asia have a podcast? Because that's a more efficient way for us to know who these people are and how to communicate with them. So I think the real growth here is that every, you know, in, in the old days, like now you say like every company has a website. I think every business leader will have a podcast. Definitely. Definitely. I think the, I think there's three things because a lot of the discussion in the B2B space at the moment is about experience. So, and I think in, in your book or you, in some of the charts that you publish, you talk about new customer experience and, we talked, we talked on it before about it, how the B2B businesses manage the, how businesses now buy and how people now buy. And, and that's where the kind of, where the, the pain points come because a lot of businesses haven't kind of adjusted to that yet. And they're using, they then look to technology to do that. Um, but that then requires a very different way of working, right? You know, that, that kind of digital transformation piece. I think the what I tried to do is distill that down into, and I'll put a link in the podcast on this. I think we have a slide, which is, or a visual of this on, on the web, is into three areas of, uh, in regards to experiences, you know, knowledge, right? So, you know, this is the, the expectation of the customer is you just don't know about what your solution is. You can also provide insight around that solution. And uh, and the topic or the subject matter, um, it was kind of it was about the how. It's now about the what. I think speed is also super important because people, you know, companies want it now. And and I, I think a massive one is transparency. And I cannot think of a better, almost a better tool. To, to be able to achieve that for a business and certainly for the leadership in the business. And I think where they can now put themselves out there to, you know, here's our knowledge. This is what we're about. We are real. Um, you, you know, you can have this information when you want. So it's quick and we know our stuff. We, we don't just think about the product, but we think about all of that context as well. And we're also super transparent. And I think that for me is a kind of, in that ex- new experience, that's the things that, um, and we did that, we got that from research that we did. So we did some research into leaders of B2B businesses and kind of tried to distill what does experience mean to you in regards to what you're trying to achieve for your customers and try to distill it down into three areas. And I think, as I said, I, I cannot think of, for me as a CEO of, of Blueprint X, for me to achieve those three things, a podcast is the probably only way I can do that, 
which you know, and in, in regards to it, you know, really enriching the experience that you that you provide to your customers. Hmm. What what was it you found in your research? What were sort of the key takeaways when you said about leadership in B two B? The real key takeaway was you know the area of of knowledge. You know, you said before around which is correct is you know the the order values for B2B are always much bigger. The transactional time is significant in months, not weeks or days. The values are in potentially hundreds of thousands or millions. And it's that knowledge of, you know, once they were, they're able to just trade on that. We know our stuff. We know our product. Our product is good and the customer will buy it. But now the customer demands insight around that. And that was what those, that research really tapped into was that's what they, they were struggling with. How do we provide that at scale? And, I, and that was the key point. And I think that really, you know, really resonated in terms of from a, because a, a B2B business is a different, very different structure than B2C. And I have a lot of conversations where a lot of people around you know, is there such a thing anymore as B2B or B2C or is it B2E, B to everyone? I, I agree with the arguments, and but I, I think that the difference is, the reason why it is different is that journey of how a customer will transact with that business is very different than it is in the consumer world. And so struggling with that, how do we, how do we tackle this knowledge problem that's, you know, really was the key takeaway from the research that we did. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of it comes down to trust. And the fact that you, you, when you say, we know our stuff, that's the trust, isn't it, in that person, that they're not going to let you down, that you've got the right guy for the job. He might not be the flashiest guy, but, you know, if you wanted that guy to perform brain surgery you want the guy with experience rather than the one who's really exciting so it's a trust thing isn't it and like because there's a lot of risk i think b2b is more driven by risk it's a corporate environment it's somebody's job it's their reputation within the, the organization it's not their money there's procurement and all these kind of things going on and as you say it's a longer cycle so it's really about trust. I mean, I guess like the, the challenges, I mean, you mentioned it very early on about how people are becoming skeptical and really sort of bringing that full circle is there's effectively what's happened in the last year in the last, I mean, even the last four or five months, Lee, is there's been a real disruption in the supply chain of trust. Now, what exactly is that all about? That in the old world, meaning like, pre-February 2020, in the old world, trust was built face-to-face -face at exhibitions. You know, you had a coffee, you met your supplier, you met your buyer, you met your client at the exhibition, at the big, you know, communications world, Asia, or whatever it was that you went to. And we all went to these sort of B2B exhibitions, right? They're a big part of what we did. And then also you met people for a coffee or you caught up with them or you went to the hotel for lunch. Or that was a big part of the supply chain of trust in B2B. But that's been completely disrupted. And it's very doubtful whether we'll ever go back to that. 
so now we've got this situation is okay trust was so important in the b2b space like how do, how do you be that guy who knows his stuff and so much of that was being about you know they had a booth at this expo and they were speaking at this conference that's all gone so now we're in this world where people are looking around thinking how do we rebuild that supply chain of trust in b2b and they're looking for solutions and the only really solution that gives authenticity is is digital and podcasts and that's where we are now so it, it's like we're trying to rebuild that supply chain that existed for 50 60 70 years and it, it got lost it's got destroyed in five or six months oh yeah yeah <laughs> Completely, uh, and, and uh, I, I agree. I think that combined with, you know, the lack of trust in the media, fake news, social media, all of these kind of things is um, just building on that skepticism. And I think in my job, I often will get a chance to sit in a room and uh, advise a client on what to buy, right? And so it, it, there's this... So I might be going through a B2B process of buying new technology and I'm there to advise the client of, you know, which, which technology should they use. And there's a, you know, so they may have three vendors and three vendors come in and the vendor that comes in and talks about their solution and their features and their functionality and that, you know, you can click this, drag that, do this, do that never wins never wins the lately right and i'm you know this is you know the last two to three years of this thing change from you know you come in and talk about your product and your product might be the best right it actually you know might have the might really fit my requirements but the business that comes in and is able to articulate communicate that this is our solution We've got all the features and functionality you need, but these are the outcomes that you will get from the solution. This is, here's the insight of what other people are doing, right? Here's what your peers are doing. Here's how they've done it before. So it's kind of feeding in to that mistrust that, and skepticism and kind of then providing and being super transparent about you know, things like perceived cost, or true cost, right? And and where you know perceived cost, I've done a, a little bit in procurement, but perceived cost was, you know, one of the things that a good procurement officer would always try and think about, right? Well, what is the perceived cost? What is the true cost? Um, where that now for a business is, you know, an opportunity to you know to really differentiate themselves and say, look, we don't deal with perceived costs; we deal with true cost, and we're going to be transparent about that. And, and, that, and what I see is those are the customers, these, those are the companies that are winning. Those are the companies that have realized that this shift has happened and we need to tap into that and are now looking at ways of how to do that. And I think I, I completely agree with you. It goes back to kind of where we started with this in terms of uh, the, you know, the good old fashioned sales guy, me and you able to paint a picture. And, and it was never a picture of products and services and 
you know, and features and functionality. It was a picture of, look, if you buy from me, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to make sure, you know, you get what you need. I'm going to make sure that you get that promotion. I'm going to make sure that you're going to get the product on time and when you need it. And you know what? Here's the guy. Here's a number of someone I deal with now. Give him a call and ask him about me, right? And that, that, that's storytelling and, and, and tapping into trust at, a, at an individual level. But the, the challenge, of course, is how the companies do that at scale. And, and that is where I think podcast and storytelling in comms in particular is, and that strategic narrative is, is now a, an absolute must, not an option. Yeah, it, it's it, I, there's something I wrote about recently called the, building the storytelling organization. I think that's going to be the next challenge. You know, like comms has always been traditionally, especially in B2B, comms has always been a gatekeeper, a, a sort of almost like, you know, in, in the same way, you look at how these companies are structured, like HR is very much a risk management function. So it's comms. And yet now we're presented with this challenge of like how do we like you say create conversations at scale and it's not it's not just for example how do i get that out to a thousand a million potential people it's also how do i scale horizontally within the organization which is like how do i get these people talking you know it's not just oliver tonby but it's all these other consultants within mckinsey talking as well because that creates their own scale you know everybody knows their own network of people authentically and trust them right now we have that challenge is how do you create that storytelling organization which is the many-to-many model because the you know in the b2b space i think you know if you have audience listeners who are from the b2b space i think one of the big takeaways now is that we're now in the end an era where really official storytelling is over and the way the way i sort of paint that picture is that the official brand narrative the official b2b company's narrative is just one bird in the tree now and that's maybe the wake-up call literally for these organizations to say actually you know for us just to have this one official narrative it's just not enough because it's you know, you, you've got not only all these different kind of medias, but you've got to have this very authentic narrative storytelling where like, I connect with 150 people and the CMO connects with 150 people and the chief procurement officer connects with 150 people. That's going to be the challenge because now that's really rewiring comms inside the organization from being a gatekeeper to being an enabler. And that's going to be an interesting challenge, but some get it. I mean, Going back to Cisco, they have a chief storytelling officer. Obviously, there's change happening. But I think we're on the right side of change. Well, hopefully, we've made a bet. And I think we're on the right side of that bet. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 think, it, it's, it's, I think what people are doing is looking for, they're looking for, you know, what are the, what are the kind of instruments? You know, uh, what, how can I get practical about this? You know, I think, and, and looking for those solutions. And, um, and I think that's the, the, where podcast, you know, kind of comes in, um, you know, as part of that journey. So if you're, you know, market marketing and comms people are now used to mapping out a buyer journey, 
right? And thinking about formats, right? So they're thinking about eBooks and they're thinking about white papers and they're thinking about video and they're thinking about all of these different, what I, what I would call formats of communications. And in that, in that, in that journey, uh, and you've seen this in terms of this is what we're doing and think about where does the podcast, where does podcast fit as part of that mix, right? So if we wanted to tell a story about a topic, which is quite, you know, work at the moment and, and the topic of how businesses work is probably kind of now found its way to the top of the pile um, in what we do in sales and marketing uh, because of COVID. Um, it's kind of supercharged that whole discussion uh, for lots of reasons, which is probably just another podcast in its own right. But and the so that 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 whole piece about how do we then communicate what we believe in a transparent way to our customers and bring in independent people, bring in world-renowned subject matter experts, bring in behavioral scientists, write our own white paper, bring in the CEO of one of the technology companies who are leading the way. But how do we do that in uh, in effectively a comms plan over a six-month period? And for me, that's really, you know, when this becomes when this becomes industrial, right? When it becomes, as you said, the website, when, you know, now everyone has a website. Now everyone does pay-per-click of, or optimization or whatever that, you know, B2B business. Very few don't. Um, this now becomes practical. And that's, that's, that's the thing, the step that, that kind of needs to happen uh, because then people get the context of, they don't think of podcast as a kind of gimmicky experiment over here that we'll have a go at, they now see this as a fundamental piece of their comms strategy and strategic narrative. And that's how we're approaching it. And, you know, and I think that's what it will take to get scale. But I do believe, yeah, I said, you're, you're, you're right at the beginning of it and, and also providing, reducing the level of effort required and reducing the knowledge gap required to, for B2B businesses to do this. This is exactly what the value you're providing, isn't it, right? That's the, that's the you know, that's a great idea for a business, right? Because you, you, you're basically reducing the level of effort required and you're providing a knowledge which kind of allows them to move into this in a quick and scalable way. Um, so, but obviously, as people can probably tell, you know, we're sold on the idea. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're doing it. Absolutely. The, the, key, the key to this, Lee, is that just understanding the phases we're going to go through, we've sort of marked out the beginning where we are. And, we, you know, the analogy with the internet is probably the best one out there. There will be two phases. There, you know, like all technology transfers through different risk profiles. And the first risk profile is leadership. And leadership is about disruption. Leadership is about people who step up, put their hand up and say, I'll do this and care really less about what other people think about them than what is necessary. You know, leadership is always hard and it's not a popularity contest, right? So it always goes to leadership 
first. And it, that's why, you know, now podcast is really makes sense for leaders because they get it. They, for them, the business case is more, they understand the nuance more, like why I need to do this. It's more of a gut reaction and the numbers really validate for that rather than the reason why they do it. And then that transfers into the second stage, which is what you call industrial, which is management, which is where it's now about optimization. So now we're in this leadership stage, which is about disruption. It's about taking a risk. It's about belief in it. And when the business cases are established, it now gets handed over the playbook to the managers who are saying, right, now this is established. There are 200,000 case studies out there of businesses that have used podcasts for this benefit, X, Y, Z, right? And we're not there yet. So that's the next phase. When it gets industrial, it's all about management and optimization, which is really, you know, it's going to be like incremental improvements on the business that they already have. But those incremental improvements over time add up. But we're still not there. We're still in that leadership phase. And I think there's a good few years to go yet. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's, you know, the, when I started my podcast and, and I've, uh, you know, other um, people in my network who also do a podcast, I've said exactly the same thing as everyone in the business sees it as, oh, look, it's just, you know, CEO's kind of thing, right? He wants to, you know, it's egotistical, right? He wants to, um, you know, that, it, and, and, and I've, I've, I've actually some customers um, who, when I've been with the kind of operational management teams, have said the same thing about their, the the podcast that they have. Well, they're like, that's, that's just the CEO, right? Um and I completely agree with that. And I think it has got a bit to run. But I also do believe that, you know, the last six months has accelerated um, this process and, um, and, and, and really got companies thinking, not so much about innovation, but thinking about, really thinking about their business model, really attacking some of these problems, like we mentioned before, around you know, knowledge and insight. And I think that's why, you know, companies like Cisco, Adobe, Salesforce are now really thinking about what story do they tell to the market and and how can they, you know, scale that right down to the team level. Um, but look, we could we could go on about this all day and and um because uh, you know I think strategic narratives, story storytelling you know, uh, podcast as a as a as an instrument and the best instrument to do that. You know, I think we're we're both believers there, and I think we're seeing you know that that kind of change in front of us. But if any of the listeners are thinking about this um, uh, or want to know more, because you are the expert, you are the subject matter expert here. Where 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 can they find you? Where should they reach out to? Uh, we'll we'll get this in the show notes as well. Yeah, come and visit us at Pickle. So P I K K A L, pickle.com. That's where we are. We've got planning guides, starting a podcast, also webinars, all B2B focused, as well as guides on B2B storytelling. If you have a podcast, all of it there. So 
go and fill your boots with all the content that we've got and also go and listen to the podcasts on there and see some of the work case studies so we've got b2b case studies for example mckinsey future of asia podcast case study that won seven awards you can go and see what that's all about so that's at pickle b-i-k-k-a-l.com or my scouse version pickal yeah <laughs> um, which I like is, the Scouse version. Uh, I know, I know. It's um, it's got I, authenticity. I, it's almost like you know when they, I don't know, just going off on a tangent. But you know, in advertising, they always pick a certain accent to sell, yeah. like insurance or banking, and it, they, you often pick a Scouse one or a, you know a, a Scottish Geordie. Yeah, Geordie, yeah. yeah. You guys are more believable, apparently. Well, I I remember the days where. I remember a CEO that I worked for of a blue chip when I was very young, just out of my football. I think I might have told you the story, so if I have. But, and he was a scouser, and um, I sat around a dinner table with him, and this is a FTSE 250 company. I won't mention his name or mention the company, but um, said to me, Lee, you need to get rid of your scouse accent, Right. And because, and this is at the time where if you lived in Liverpool, you couldn't go to Manchester and do business, right? You know, it, it was, yeah. and those things have vanished now, right? Those it, it just vanished. It's not, but at the time I believed him and actually I spent a lot of time trying to probably neutralize my accent, but what a load of rubbish that was. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that's something that we now, you know, everyone kind of, it's now one of those things, as you said, where people actually, you know, it's that authenticity. It's interesting. You know, I love to speak to people from all over the world, all sorts of different accents. Um, and that's that kind of, you know, um, you know, one of those kind of things in a, in a, in a, when I look back in my career, one of my naive moments, there hasn't been many, many of them, but that was definitely one of them. Um, but I would, look, like, one to, of the I would other, like to hear that one day, that accent. Yeah. The Scouse one. No. Oh, the non-Scouse accent, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, it was a mix of kind of, I don't know, right? It was... Posh. It, it, it was. It was weird, right? That, that's what it was. And, it wasn't um, you. That was the point. It, it wasn't me. It, it wasn't, wasn't authentic. authentic. No, exactly. No. That was the word. And, and, uh, but he was a good CEO, but he, that wasn't... I think he was more his experience going right. back into the kind of, you know probably early, late 70s, early 80s. But um, what, one of the other things I would definitely get point people to as well is, is your recent um, ebook, hmm. And I love the charts in there. Hmm. Um, I think it's a great way to communicate. I've actually nicked that idea, just to let you know, right? I, I, I've done that recently. And as long as you're not producing. profiting out of my hard no, labor. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I, 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 I would never do that. Um, but I, I there's also a... a um, uh, a, a tool called Strategizer, which we use, which mm. I, I know you've seen. And um, Alex, who runs Strategizer, uses a lot of kind of visual tools like that in terms of animations and actually drawings to ex explain complex. And I, it's, so it's, you know, when, when you're in a business of, and particularly in B2B, it's often complex and it's often, you know, um, as we said before, multiple audiences. So great way, great way. Of achieving that so i would also point people to that and uh, because it's really interesting but graham look um i've managed to get you on my podcast you've you've privileged me 
twice coming on yours. Um, so really appreciate you taking the time. A phenomenal um, knowledge. I think, you know, in terms of we are at the beginning of this and super exciting to be involved with you uh, at the beginning of this as well. So really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you, Lee. I really thank you. And just not just for this podcast, but just for being part of the journey together. And, you know, let's look back when we're old and gray that we can look back on these moments and say we were there. 100%. 100%. Um, appreciate it, mate. Cheers. And by the way, full-time score 2-1. So oh, two on mine, yeah. one on yours. Absolutely. Well, we'll do the, we'll do the next one soon and, um, you know, uh, and go deep, deeper into the subject. Cheers, Graham. Cheers, Lee. Thanks, everyone. You can find all of this information and more on blueprintx.com where you can find high quality show notes and other great stuff. And you can also sign up for my weekly update on interesting things I have found in sales and marketing. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.